Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Filene Fill-In. I'm Holly Fearing with Filene, and we're back with the podcast after taking a summer break. I hope everyone enjoyed a beautiful summer and any time off you may have managed to get. I know I did. If you don't already know it, the Filene Fill-In is the podcast where we fill you in on what's been going on here at Filene's home base and out and about in the financial services world. Lisa Servon is a professor of city and regional planning at the University of Pennsylvania and the former dean of the New School. She conducts research in the areas of urban poverty, community development, economic development, and issues of gender and race. Specific areas of expertise include economic insecurity, consumer financial services, and financial justice. Lisa holds a BA, an MA, and a PhD, and she's also the author of the book, The Unbanking of America, How the New Middle Class Survives. And Adam Lee is Filene's incubator director. As our incubator director, Adam leads Filene's efforts to make a difference in the lives of financially vulnerable consumers by seeking programs to solve the challenge, testing those solutions in the real world, and sharing results with the marketplace. Currently, Adam is working with credit unions to test innovative programs to close the financial services access gap in the Reaching Minority Households Incubator, which you can find more about on Filene.org. Together, they are starting a conversation on financial justice here in Madison that can't be ignored. First, Lisa will be joining Filene at the Goodman Center on Monday, October 2nd at 6 p.m. That's free to attend. And if you register now at Filene underscore Lisa dot eventbrite.com, that's eventbrite spelled E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E dot com, you'll get a free copy of Lisa's book, the Unbanking of America, and she'll be signing them as well. So be sure to get there, get engaged, and get it signed. This is absolutely a conversation that's worth joining. The day after that event, the two of them are speaking at the YWCA's Racial Justice Summit. Their topic is pursuing financial justice and equity in communities of color. Black and Hispanic households are far more likely to face financial gaps than any other racial groups. 55% of Black and 52% of Hispanic households report net worth of less than $10,000 compared to only 24% of white households. In the U.S., systematic barriers exist preventing minority households from building better financial lives. In her new book, The Unbanking of America, Lisa describes her experience working as a teller at a check-cashing store to understand why financially struggling families leverage alternative financial services in a dysfunctional mainstream banking and credit system. This is an event you should check out if you're interested in social, racial, and financial justice. Their description of the summit explains that each year, YWCA Madison hosts a racial justice summit that brings together community stakeholders to work on eliminating barriers that foster racism in our community, The summit focuses on institutional racism and involves nationally known keynote speakers and researchers, as well as local experts and advocates. Learn more about this event at ywcamadison.org. I was fortunate enough to be able to catch both Lisa and Adam for a few moments to share more in their own words on these issues. I asked about what drove Lisa to these experiences that formed the basis for her book. What does financial justice look like? What is broken about our financial system and what can people, financial institutions, and communities do about it, despite our broken state today? Here's what they had to say. 
my work has always focused on urban poverty and community economic development, and uh, and some of it has involved financial issues. I've done a lot of work on microenterprise development, looking at the impact of small loans to people who are trying to start their own businesses, and often those loans are targeted to women and people of color, underrepresented minorities. So I guess it was... Um, you know, kind of a natural transition to look at consumer financial services. Um, but the work that that led to my book was really initiated or ignited by a visit to a class that I was teaching by a man named Joe Coleman, who runs a chain of check cashing stores in the South Bronx and Harlem and New York City. And I had read that every everything that was written about alternative financial services, check cashers and payday lenders and the like, which is to say there's not a whole lot written, but everything that is out there really um, paints these businesses and the people who run them as completely predatory and sleazy and kind of part, part of the poverty industry. And that's really what I was prepared to have kind of substantiated by Joe's visit. And when he came, he really talked about how he felt that his businesses were providing a necessary and useful service in the communities and that they had a strong emphasis on treating people the right way. Uh, and so I, that completely took me off guard. I, I went back and looked at the numbers and the data, and I did realize that one thing was missing from the stories that were out there, which was why were so many people using these services? And I think people kind of jumped to the conclusion that, well, these are people who perhaps are ignorant about their options. They um, don't know that they could save all this money. And having worked in low-income communities for more than 20 years, it struck me that that could not be the whole story. Maybe it was part of it, but uh, it struck me that there had to be a better reason because in, in the communities that I've worked in, people who don't have much money tend to know where every dime goes and they're not profligate. They can't really afford to pay more than they need to for things. And so that's what led me to take a job, you know, a number of years later to call that same man, Joe Coleman, and ask if he would hire me because I felt that um, in order to really understand what was going on with this issue, I needed to get as close to the problem as possible. And so uh, Joe agreed to hire me, and, uh, you know, I thought that I would be writing a book about kind of this small community and the use of, of financial services in this community in the South where I worked as a teller. Um, but it, what I ended up learning was that, first of all, there was a lot more going on than just a check catcher. Um, there were a lot of informal financial services. But I also started realizing that there were a lot of people who were turning to alternative financial services beyond the poor and minority communities that I think we think of as using them. Um, which is why, you know, the, t the subtitle of my book is How the New Middle Class Survives. And I started realizing that there was a much broader group of people who are facing chronic financial insecurity and who are turning to this service, these services because mainstream financial services are not serving them well. I think one of the things to underscore what Lisa just had talked about, from my understanding, I come from a um, uh, community service background, uh, working with different AmeriCorps programs is how I started my professional career. 
And I think one of the things that she stressed and what I find so unique in how she approached the situation was not coming from a place of consumer finance, but for people to really understand this topic of financial justice and the financial needs of individuals, that it's in these economic departments, these urban planning departments, social work, um, nonprofits, you know, these are the organizations that have it really dialed in to understand what people's true needs are. And I think also has led to some of the issues that we see now, because we're looking at it from just a financial perspective and the balance sheets in the book but not really truly understanding what people's needs are. So I think that's really, really important of something that she stressed from my experience. But also, you know, one of the questions I think you're going to, that you wanted to explore was just why is this really important for credit unions as well? And what I've come to appreciate from my time in AmeriCorps, we were doing community service, we were building trails, we were building homes, we're working in schools, but I never got a chance to work on any issues around financial management or financial wellness. And what I've come to appreciate about working at Filene is that the topic of financial justice and financial access and affordable access to these types of solutions is this has the same importance and really deserves to be in the exact same conversation as housing, as food, as healthcare, as education, as all these other things that we know help people improve their lives, both the middle class and the poor. Um, so it's just time we start talking about the importance of financial financial matters. Can you help draw the tie here for why Filene is talking about this topic and why is it important that Filene does this? Yep, absolutely. So if we I mean, take that premise of just the importance of financial resources and the access to affordable and quality financial services as a means to improving someone's life, um, there's no better, um, in my personal opinion, uh, industry that can really make a big difference, and that is credit unions. Credit unions were built for this. Credit unions, credit unions have that tax exemption status that they're able to use to make those larger reinvestments in their community. Um, credit unions are absolutely poised to be able to make a dent in this. And Filene, by the nature of our organization, what we do to enable credit unions to better serve their members and fulfill that mission, I think it has everything to do with what Filene does. Um, we have a vital stake in this topic because the vitality and the mission of credit unions is tied directly to the livelihood of consumers that need our help, that need the access to financial resources. Lisa, in your book, you talk about America's financial system as being broken. How is it broken? And maybe even just before that, can you frame for us what you define as as financial justice? So I, I define financial justice as the right to all citizens to safe and affordable financial services, the kind of services that will enable people to reach financial health. Um, and that means that whatever products and services are out there from mainstream or alternative financial services providers, that they're safe, meaning they won't trick you or gouge you with, um, with fees or false advertising, and that they'll enable you to build savings and, uh, and borrow money that you need to borrow when you do and, and plan for the future and budget. Now, Financial institutions can't do all of that. Um, we are living in a time when we've seen declining wages since the 1970s, when financial volatility, income volatility, has doubled over the past 30 years, uh, and expenses like childcare and education have skyrocketed. So, obviously, financial the financial services industry can't solve all of those problems, but um, we are lacking those kinds of services for everyone. The second piece of financial justice, I think, is that making sure that people aren't discriminated based on race, gender, where they live, et cetera. And even though we have laws like the Community Reinvestment Act in place, 
we're still seeing that kind of discrimination where African-Americans are paying more for mortgages, where women are paying more for credit. And that's just not right. Adam, I know that you explained a little bit already about why credit unions should be paying attention to this issue and that they have a role in maybe helping to, if we can, to help resolve this issue. I know that your work puts you in front of a lot of credit unions that are doing things that are a little bit outside of the norm to help everyday Americans reach um, some of the higher levels of, of financial justice, as Lisa just described it. Do you have any examples that you would like to share with us about how some credit unions are creating better financial access and financial justice in their communities? Yes, I would, Holly. I think there are some fantastic examples. I was just at the National Federation of Community Development Credit Unions Conference um, a few weeks ago in St. Louis, and we got to take a site visit at um, what was called the Wealth Accumulation Center from the host credit union, St. Louis Community Credit Union. And I was really astounded by the leadership role that they took in trying to address this issue in their community. One of the creative ways that they did it was by forming this Wealth Accumulation Center, as I mentioned, where it has this one-stop shop where you have the credit union branch there, but also a nonprofit that takes a leadership role in financial education, financial literacy courses that are open to the community, but also a payday alternative lender called Reddo. And they have it all in the same building. And I think what was really great about it is that the unabashed way in which St. Louis community has said, we're going to partner with these organizations. We're going to partner with this nonprofit to have a joint centralization of services for, you know, give people a one-stop shop for everything they need from a small dollar loan alternative to more advanced and more um, complex financial services they need as their, as their financial health improves with the credit union. So I think that was just a really great way for them to take, you know, put their neck out and just say, we're going to put ourselves in an area of the community that really needs our services. Even it may not be as profitable as putting in a downtown or some more affluent areas, but they went into the heart of where the need was and set up this big, prominent building to be able to say, this is where we're going to take our stand, this is who we're going to serve, and this is what we're going to commit to doing as an organization. In that same vein of just taking a stand to stand for something, to be meaningful in credit unions, I think Point West Credit Union in Portland, Oregon is another great example of doing some of their ITIN lending with the non-citizen program or the non-citizens in their uh, community. They provide things like credit cards, different types of auto loans, personal loans. And what they've done, despite all the political turmoil, is to try to rise above it and to be able to say, these non-citizens are members of our community. And despite some pushback from their community or certain members that they have, they've decided that they're going to take a stand and they're going to serve these individuals in the best way possible. Not because of their status, but because they're members of the community. And that is fulfilling their mission in the best way possible. So I think it's just that idea of credit unions being able to fulfill their role, see their mission in a new light, and be unafraid to be able to take a, to fulfill that mission in a way that they feel is most meaningful for their community. All right, so now our conversation, I can tell, is starting to get heated up now. Uh, We're getting warmed up, and I can tell (laughs) Adam's got some zingers for us. He's promised. So, um, Adam, what more needs to get done? Lay, Lay it on us. Well, so at that conference as well, there was a great statistic that I think I heard um, that really just took me aback, and that is from how credit unions are currently performing on a wide scale, right? So this is industry where there are examples of a lot of credit unions that are really taking a stand as some of the examples that I just said and really serving financially vulnerable communities and members. 
Um, but on the aggregate, um, a statistic that I heard at that conference is that credit unions on average are about 11% um, capitalized, right? So that means that they have a sufficient amount of assets to be able to secure and perform um, financially and meet the needs of the regulators. But what the NCUA demands, excuse me, the NCUA demands is a 7% rate. So really what that says is a lot of credit unions are holding on to cash and resources that they have the potential to be reinvesting into their community. So what more needs to be done? I think in a lot of ways, credit unions have the opportunity to fulfill their mission, to draw that, you know, to walk that fine line of being able to be financially solvent to be able to be financially secure so that their broader membership assets are protected, but at the same time, make those daring and bold investments into their community that can make the biggest difference. Um, that takes guts to be able to do, but I think credit unions are at a point after the financial crisis where they can start making those investments. Lisa, what would you say needs to be done? A few lessons came out really strongly from my research in terms of why people were saying that they were using alternative financial services instead of mainstream. Now, what I found was that oftentimes people were making rational choices, but they were doing so because I think mainstream financial institutions, particularly banks, were failing them. So one thing that I wrote about and that I continue to preach is that I think credit unions are a much better option. I think a lot of people are simply not aware of why credit unions are different and that they may very well have the opportunity to join one. I actually spoke at a prison in St. Louis uh, on Monday and was asked, you know, why I was talking so much about credit unions. And people there did not realize that they were a cooperative model and not a uh, for-profit model like banks. And I, I don't think that's particular to the prison population. I think lots of people don't know that credit unions are often a better option for them. So I think for places like Filet and credit unions, there's an opportunity, I think, to get a larger market share. Um, I also think that mainstream financial institutions can do a better job of, uh, of in some ways, copying what alternative financial services providers do in terms of their transparency. Uh, when you walk into a check casher or a payday lender, it's very clear what's on offer, how much things cost. Um, people feel a sense of security around that, whereas when you walk into a regular bank branch, you usually don't see any signage. And as the financial services market has become increasingly complex, it's harder for people to know what products will be best for them. And especially if you didn't grow up perhaps going to the bank like I did with my parents when I was a kid or if you're new to this country, you may not realize uh, what kind of choices, what kind of information is important. Similarly, with things like disclosure agreements, um, obviously a lot of that information, the fact that it has to be provided to people is mandated by law. However, there are ways to simplify the really important stuff that people use to make comparisons between one product and another. Um, I also think service is critical. Um, what's difficult is that there is a lot of activity now that's migrating online, people using technology, for example, to manage their money. And it's hard to figure out exactly how to replicate the kind of service people get at some of these alternative financial services stores to the online environment. But um, I think that's one thing that should be thought about long and hard. And for the brick-and-mortar stores, for sure. You know, when I worked at the, at the check cashier in the South Bronx, the two women I worked with had both been there for 10 years. And so when people came in, they recognized the people who were there. They knew they could trust them. 
They often asked um, questions that were maybe not directly even related to financial services. Um, a final thing, I could go on and on, but I think one other thing is um, kind of piggybacking off of what Adam said, the check casher where I worked had a partnership with a credit union so that even though the check casher could not take deposits by law, uh, people who used it could deposit money directly into their credit union account when they went to cash their checks. And that benefited the credit union because it essentially got a lot more outlets for people to deposit. And it benefited the check cashier because they could provide another service to their customers. So I think there's a lot of creative things that can be done. One other thing, just to add, Holly, I think is just having a conversation like the one right now. I mean, nationally, you see the conversation about housing and health care. I mean, these are big things that we see constantly in, in media. But wh where's the conversation about financial justice? Where's the conversation about equal access to financial resources? We're really fortunate um, for Lisa Servan. She's actually going to be coming to Madison, Wisconsin on October 2nd to have a conversation about financial justice here in Madison, Wisconsin. And great work like authors and, and researchers like her and so many others are trying, are trying to ha and, excuse me, are trying to kickstart that conversation about the importance, as I mentioned, of access to quality and affordable financial services as it's just important as these other factors. Um, so we need, what more can be done? We need to talk about it more. We need to make sure that this is a headline as an industry when credit unions talk about it. We need to be doing more research at this at the level of universities. We need to be talking about this in the media. This has to be a priority for um, state, local, and federal administrations. Uh, it just has to be treated with the same importance and sense of urgency as some of these other issues that we talk about on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. I also think it's really important to kind of get as much perspective outside of your own bubble as possible. And something that you mentioned, Lisa, I'm really interested in um, hearing more from you on it. Uh, you mentioned that you were speaking at a prison in St. Louis recently. Can you comment on you know what is kind of the, the vibe and the feeling in that place and that in this time right now? Well, it was really fascinating. I mean, first of all, I was there in St. Louis um, shortly after the most recent verdict mm -hmm. of a uh, uh, police officer killing an African-American man, and the police officer was acquitted. And so there was a lot of protesting going on in the city when I was there. But um, aside from that, it was fascinating. I'd never, I knew that there were issues of financial injustice happening with incarcerated and informally incarcerated people. They have very few choices about what they can spend their money on when they're in prison. So they're kind of a captive market. Um, there's this whole prison industrial complex thing. But there was also a class action suit about a year ago, I want to say, uh, led by formerly incarcerated people who were only given one choice of a debit card to use when they, were, when they got out, which had exorbitant fees. And so um, I think there is a problem of um, maybe taking advantage of the vulnerability of these people who haven't been in society for a long time and not giving them a whole lot of options. Um, I, in terms of the actual experience, I spoke to a group of 50 or 60 men who had been there anywhere from a couple of months to uh, 30 years, uh, and I was really struck by their engagement with my talk. Um, and their intense curiosity about um, what to do about the community college debt that they still had outstanding when they were incarcerated, um, how to build a good credit score when they got out, whether they would be able to get a bank account or 
um, or get a credit card. And sometimes those they were thinking, really planning ahead for their own futures, and sometimes they were very concerned about their families. There was a man who talked about having three millennial-age children and really wanting to make sure that they were managing their money responsibly. So, um, uh, you know, I, I had a ton of questions from the men. Uh, I, I hope to be able to go back and do some interviews just to lift up some of the particular issues that are facing this extraordinarily large and vulnerable population. Adam, what are your thoughts on hearing that from Lisa and the work that you're doing with credit unions? What's in your brain right now? Absolutely. I think, you know, so with the, the incubator function that we have, we try to test programs that meet the particular needs of consumers. And our financial empowerment incubator, it's focusing on these individuals that don't have that fair shake and that fair access to resources. Um, talking about incarcerated individuals that are recently released, I mean, yeah, they're coming out with an understanding of a rapidly changing financial world. There's different types of products online. Um, there are different types of services. How do you use them? What's the best rate? How do you, do, you, know, how do you navigate this complex financial system that we have? And I think credit unions absolutely have a role um, in what Filene is trying to do is work with credit unions to be able to find those innovative solutions to meet the particular needs that emerge. So if credit unions can start continuing to look at new opportunities in their community, this is a great example, right? I can't, I, nothing comes to head, my, my head, so if there's somebody listening to this podcast, of a credit union that is really effectively serving recently released individuals from prison, we would love to hear about it because these are all different types of opportunities where credit unions can fulfill that mission of serving their communities, serving the unmet needs. That's why credit unions started in the first place, right? Way back when, when they weren't either too wealthy or too lucrative to be able to take it on by banks, credit unions were formed around the concept that they were able to fill that gap, that people could come together to fulfill an unmet financial need. Um, so if credit unions can fulfill that core mission and find those new opportunities in their community to serve those individuals, and those individuals come in all shapes, sizes, forms, and different backgrounds, right? Non-citizens, mm -hmm. people from prison, um, international students, people that look like you and me that may be in the middle class that you just see those hidden factors of struggles that they have financially. Um, so if credit unions take the time to really assess their community, I think they can start doing the work and fulfill the needs like the things that Lisa are talking about. I have to believe that this isn't just a social issue, that it's actually smart business as well to create a, a financial infrastructure where people have access to better quality products that they need. What are your thoughts on what the impacts could be on our greater economy if we did find a way to bring greater access to better quality financial products to all? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I think that the larger banks, at least, don't have a huge incentive to do it. Um, they see the people who are struggling, which is a, an increasing number for some of the kind of macro reasons I already mentioned, but they see those people as not being necessarily huge profit generators. You know, when when I was a kid, um, banks were much more local, and they made more of their money. They were more dependent on the average person who lived locally and put their money there and had a checking and a savings account to generate a profit. Um, but once the legislation changed and, and deregulation started happening, we saw uh, banks being able to branch more, merge with other kinds of financial services companies, um, do business overseas. So, so they've moved away from relying as much on those kind of basic account services to make their money. At, at the same time, they have become more reliant on fees. And that's partly because 
you know, interest income became less stable with the savings and loan crisis. Uh, but starting around the 80s, they started really charging fees that they had never charged before. So younger people might not realize that before then, there was very rare to incur an overdraft fee. Um, we see far fewer banks that are providing uh, free checking, et cetera. So um, I think the thing is, meanwhile, Americans' reality is shifting in terms of their being less able to uh, to kind of make it, you know, 75% of Americans live from paycheck to paycheck and more than half could not come up with $500 in the event of an emergency. So, I, but I still don't expect the big banks to shift very much. I think that they're pretty stuck in their ways. Um, credit unions, I think, are different in that they, they, they do um, focus more on individual customers. Um, and a lot of smaller banks do. And increasingly, we are seeing technology companies kind of saying, wait a minute, you know, there's a problem here and maybe we can figure out a, a, a way to solve it the, where we're using technology to help um, close the gap or help lower our costs. Um, so I do think that there is a huge opportunity. Uh, and I do think that there are people trying to figure it out. I don't think it's going to be the big banks. I think there's a great opportunity for credit unions. Mm-hmm. And Adam, you recently wrote an article in the Credit Union Times about society, regulations, credit unions that are being smart about where the direction of uh, our society is moving um, is, is good business. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, when we talk about just bottom line impact for individual organizations, I really do think that whether it be for credit unions, and again, credit unions, I think, are in the best position to support these because of how you know how they're formed and their structure and their purpose and their mission, member-owned financial cooperatives. But I think it's also time to start smashing preconceived notions and perceptions that a lot of financial institutions have about serving these populations and start getting a dose of reality. Because a lot of the research that we've done in some of these financial products um, that we're testing as part of our Reaching Minority Households Incubator is that we do see that they are absolutely financially sustainable, if not profitable, for a lot of institutions. So it can be a win-win. The member can get something a lot better than they could get at an alternative financial institution, um, but also helps the institution, like a credit union or a community bank, that's really making those investments. Um, the data that we're seeing, not all, but a lot of programs, you will see that bottom line impact, that positive bottom line impact. We get reports from an example that I'll use, Point West, that I mentioned earlier. They're actually reporting that on their non-citizen portfolio, their ITIN lending portfolio, their repayment rates are actually higher than their repayment rates as a whole for the entire loan portfolio. So it's actually better performing in many respects. So I think that's one thing that needs to happen, is we just need to start taking a look at while there may be perceived risk, and certainly there is, of serving these individuals, but it can be managed effectively if institutions take the time to figure out how to do that well. And when they do, it helps their bottom line. In terms of supporting the community, um, I, I think there's just no better explanation that all ships rise with a, with a common tide. And if we can help help individuals improve their own economic status, that can improve the economy as a whole. Um, there's a great adage that I always look back on for Henry Ford and making a case for he actually fought for a huge industrialist back in, in the day when Henry Ford started pumping out his Model Ts of uh, saying that I'm going to want to make sure that my employees can afford the cars that I produce. And in doing so, he was an advocate for increasing the minimum wage. And that, I think, is just a great example of how as we enable people to have better financial health, then the economy as a whole can also be much more healthy. 
based on how it's structured and how people can spend and purchase services and goods within our country. And if there's credit union listeners right now to our podcast, nodding your head all along the way through this entire recording, I want to tell you, first thing you should do is read Lisa's book, The Unbanking of America. Second thing, come to our event on October 2nd in Madison, if you're a Madison person or nearby, or, you know, they have airplanes, so get on an airplane, (laughs) come on out there, Um, because it's going to be a really important conversation. But Adam, what else should they do if they're listening and going, yes, 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 I want to get involved in this work? I'm so glad you asked, Holly. So, you know, the the function that we have in our filing incubator, as I mentioned, is just enabling credit unions to better serve financially vulnerable populations or just members in general through our I3 program, our financial empowerment incubator, I4, et cetera. Um, What credit unions can do is I think a lot of them don't realize that we have a lot of resources that are free on our website, programs that we've tested. We have implementation playbooks and guides that they can start with today. They can open those up and start offering some of these programs at their institutions. But also to start sharing more information and collaboration, a spirit that we like to endorse here at Filene amongst financial institutions and credit unions. There are a lot of institutions out there with really good ideas, like St. Louis Community that I just mentioned, Point West, and a lot of the other testers that we have. But those ideas work great for the community that they're being deployed in. But all these different ideas can be scaled nationally. And that's something also that we're very proud to do at Filene is to be able to, to, to take these programs that are having success on a small scale in these concepts, but be able to blow, blow them up on a much wider scale. So that's just an invitation for these credit unions nodding their head, as you said, to come play with us, to be able to start participating in these uh, conversations. But also, I think, for credit unions nodding their head is to get active in your local community. There are so many opportunities with community development agencies to provide things like small business loans or payday alternatives. Talk with your local chamber of commerce. Talk with your local politicians. Talk with your local nonprofit agencies. There's power through collaboration. And when credit unions can start partnering, as Lisa mentioned earlier, with these social service institutions or political institutions, uh, government entities, we can amplify the impact that we're making as a credit union industry. So get out there, get active, find those partnerships where you can make the best possible difference in the lives of your members. Cool. Lisa, while you have the attention of the credit union audience here, what advice would you have for them or or maybe you have a plead or, or a request of them? Well, I think um, a couple of things. I, I agree. Look for a credit union that you can join if you are not already a member of one. Um, I also would make a plug for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Mm-hmm. Um, Consumer Financial Protection is really under siege right now, and uh, there are a couple of things in play. One is uh, something called an arbitration rule where uh, lots of financial services, including Equifax last week when you um, when you sign up for a product or services, service, you're often asked to sign away your right to join a class action suit. Um, that's kind of a big deal when people are getting nickel and dimes with overdraft fees and things like that. So to uh, be vigilant about consumer rights being taken away. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. I mean, I, I think you mentioned that article that I wrote in the CU Times, Holly, about the forecasting, where the trends are happening. I think our society is reaching a breaking point when it comes to financial services. And by that, I mean there's going to be just a backlash and a greater demand because things are going to get bad for people that we're going to have to demand our institutions to do better. Um, I think the CFPB is a great example of that. But we're, we're at a boiling point, And I think for people to start 
taking more action, um, the same visceral type reaction that we get when we talk about healthcare and taking away someone's healthcare, right? That makes me just as angry when you start taking away access to financial services. So, you know, hopefully we can start getting that same emotion and that same reaction to start urging our leaders to be able to to protect consumers via the CFPB or to pass laws that provide more fair and equitable access to financial resources. Well, I can't wait to continue this conversation at the event on October 2nd. And for those of you listening, again, definitely get down there and join us for that. We're going to be talking about all this and more. If you're listening to this now after October 2nd, well, maybe you should pay attention more because uh, <laughs> too late. But uh, it's not too late to get part of the part of the conversation um, and reach out to Filene and see what your credit union can do to help. Any last thoughts from either of you? I'm really looking forward to the conversation and the actual event. So thanks so much for having me and inviting me. And it should be terrific. Yeah, of course. We're excited, too. Yeah, I just wanted to echo and say thank you for Lisa for taking the time. Um, it's it's people like you, Lisa, that really are taking a stand. I know from an academic perspective, to help broadcast the message and the true need that this has in society. Um, so thank you for your work and your colleagues to be able to start tooting the horn and start broadcasting out that this is a a crisis pending and we need to be able to respond accordingly. So thank you for leading the way. That's it for the fill in, folks. Thanks again for listening. A huge thank you to Lisa and Adam for sharing their experiences, insight, and knowledge zingers with us today. If you liked this episode, go out and rate us on Apple Podcasts so more people can find us. And make sure you're subscribed to the Filene Fill-In Podcast so you can keep up with what's going on at Filene. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to get in touch about today's show, feel free to email me at hollyf at filene.org. Or find us on Twitter at at Filene Research. Until next time, thanks everyone. Nobody wants to have their professor put them to sleep, you know? <laughs> I'm sure nobody falls asleep in your classroom. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet.